It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. It's a pleasure to welcome to the show Larry Savage. He's a professor in the Department of Labor Studies at Brock University. His research is broadly concerned with union strategy, and he teaches courses on labor unions, collective bargaining, and labor policies. And we are talking to him today about an article he authored in The Conversation entitled Canadian Election 2021, Do Strategic Voting Campaigns Actually Work? So it's a pleasure to have Larry here on the show. Larry, welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so, um, you know, reading over your article, I thought it was really interesting. I thought maybe the best way for us to start this conversation is maybe to describe what strategic voting is, first of all, um, then maybe describe the the strategic voting campaigns, because they seem like two different things, and then uh, maybe starting to understand the confusion around those things, because that's really what you you started to get into was uh, the individual person looking at how and what they're being told and uh, with these campaigns that they are being sometimes instructed to to do from perhaps their collecting collective bargaining unit or whatever it might be. I thought it might help to to get some of that uh, understood clearly so that we know what we're talking about as we get into this, if that's okay. Sure. So let's start with a simple definition. Mm -hmm. Strategic voting occurs when you cast a ballot, not for your preferred candidate, but rather for the candidate you think is best positioned to defeat the candidate you prefer the least. Yes. So, for example, you might consider yourself more closely aligned to the NDP personally, but you're told that that party doesn't really have a chance in your riding. So you vote strategically for the liberal candidate because you think they're best positioned to defeat the conservative Mm. candidate who you really don't like. Right. That would be an example of anti-conservative strategic voting, which is likely the most popular form of strategic voting we've seen in Canada. Mm. And it's also the form of strategic voting where we see the most organizational resources poured into by labor unions and other progressive community organizations whose strategy is really an anybody but conservative strategy. Hmm. Now, splitting a vote is is similar to this in some ways, isn't it? Yes. Well, vote splitting happens uh, when you have two parties who might splinter uh, the anti-conservative vote in Hmm. a way that would let the conservative come up the middle. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the vote splitting, of course, is something that happens in multi party systems like mm. we have mm-hmm. in Canada. Yeah. Right. Okay. Thank you for that definition. Um, I think uh, now campaigns. Yeah. So the campaigns, there are often organized campaigns that strategic voting advocates will put together where they will pick. Uh, maybe a dozen or two dozen ridings where they think uh, the election is really going to be determined and where they think that if a group of voters sort of came together behind a single alternative to the conservatives, that they might have a big impact on the outcome. So, for example, in previous elections, a union like the Canadian Auto Workers Union that is the biggest proponent of strategic voting 
they've picked out, you know, 40 ridings where they consider uh, strategic voting to be an important tactic to determine the outcome of the election. But the evidence from those campaigns suggest that the strategic voting effort was not very successful and in some cases was altogether counterproductive mm. in that it facilitated the election of conservatives rather than block them. Right, which is interesting. And, and that's, I guess, where understanding some of the confusion at the at the uh, the single level uh, of what people are being instructed to do and how they're interpreting the information they're getting as to what they're supposed to be doing, right? That's right. There are lots of complicating factors that... Um, that expose the gap between the theory of strategic voting and the actual practice. Mm. So, for example, in some writings, anti-conservative organizations sometimes can agree on who the strategic vote should go to. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in those cases, you might have a liberal and an NDP candidate both self-proclaiming themselves as the strategic choice or alternative conservatives. And that just tends to confuse voters. It's also true that a lot of people just think strategic voting means vote liberal. Mm. And that's because the media usually reports on national polls. Mm. We're rarely ever treated with riding level polling data. And as a result, people make incorrect assumptions all the time about their state of their local Mm. races based on national polling data. So, for example, if you were new to a riding like Hamilton Center, you might look at the national polls and think voting liberal is the best way to stop the conservatives. Of course, you'd be very wrong because Mm. Hamilton Center has been an NDP stronghold for some time. Mm. But the point here is that effective strategic voting requires a very high level of voter education, coordination and awareness that simply doesn't exist in Canada. I'm really glad you mentioned that because that's exactly what I thought as I was reading through your article. I went, this sounds like it really does need a lot of education if you're going to be up on top of this and, and be able to use this, the, these strategic practices uh, to your advantage. That's right. I mean, here's the thing. Strategic voting may mean very different things to different people. Some people might think, I'm going to vote strategically against the liberals to deny them a majority. Mm. Or you might have people on the right of the political spectrum, people who may be uh, wanting to vote for the People's Party saying, well, you know what, I might hold my nose and vote for O'Toole if I think he can beat Trudeau. Or you might have a Green Party supporter deciding they're going to vote NDP because they don't think their candidate stands a chance. Mm. It's not just uh, a matter of people consolidating around anti-conservative voters, even though unions and other progressive organizations have really pushed that specific frame of strategic voting. Mm. So the bottom line is that because everybody has these very different ideas of what it means, the organized efforts to do it in a specific kind of way are really undermined. And the bottom line is that the success of organized strategic voting campaigns as a result has become very overstated 
And in some cases, people are actually helping to splinter the anti-conservative vote even more. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to get into some of those examples you give. But before we do, as you were talking there, I was thinking about how, you, you know, when people start to look at how to strategize around where to put their vote, as we're talking about here, strategically voting and through campaigns. Um, the other thing that came to mind was that we see the benefits of, say, a minority government. Um, because they have to work better together with the other parties in order to get things accomplished. And it seems like over history, there's been a lot of success with minority governments that have been good for the country in terms of bringing in certain policies. And, and, uh, you know, I think healthcare was one of those and NDP uh, brought that in, you know, so, so even though they're not elected, they, they carry weight and they get a lot of things accomplished and brought through, which seems to benefit the country on the whole. So I wonder about how people think about, you know, what should I do with this vote of mine? This is a very interesting discussion because the value of majority versus minority governments is kind of a separate issue altogether, but it's Mm. integrated in the sense that people are making strategic decisions based on their preferred outcomes. This also just leads to an undermining of the strategy of strategic voting altogether, because, as you know, David, some people want minority governments, but there's a heck of a lot of people who would prefer majority governments. And so it's a bit of a mugs game to be sitting there at the ballot box thinking, well, I'm going to vote for this candidate because I think this might help achieve a minority or conversely, that it might help achieve a majority if you vote for a different candidate. Again, unless everyone's on board with the same general strategy, you really have everyone trying to out-strategize everyone else, and it's a big mess at the end of the day. Mm. The idea about the education around this and what is needed in order to people and for people to really take advantage and understand how to strategically vote if they want to, uh, as you say, there's we don't have that in Canada. Uh, why do you think there hasn't been more emphasis on on that idea of understanding your vote and understanding uh, strategic voting and and getting more educated on the whole uh, about the system? I think, you know, I think there are several things happening here. The first is that some people have no interest Mm -hmm. in strategic voting. They just want to vote their values. They want to vote for the candidate they think best represents their interests. Mm. They're not concerned about trying to game the system. There are another group of voters who are thinking about how their vote might play into the campaign more generally. But the folks who are pushing, promoting strategic voting the most tend to be people with strong partisan interests themselves. Mm. And so, you know, on Twitter, you'll see a lot of liberals browbeating New Democrats, telling them that they need to vote strategically in order to stop Aaron O'Toole. Mm. And the response of a lot of the NDP supporters is to, to the liberals is to say, hey, You guys are pretending like this is a one-way street. Are Mm. you also going to lend your vote to the NDP in ridings where that makes sense? Right. (laughs) So when you have these partisan interests clashing, sort of trying to carry the mantle of strategic voting, it really undermines the strategy's uh, credibility in the minds of individual voters who might at the end of the day think, you know what, I don't know who to trust or who to believe, so I'm just going to go and vote for who I was intending to vote for all along. 
Yeah. Yeah, very interesting. Um, and it, very, it is very interesting, isn't it, to discuss all of this and understand it, because it, it's quite fascinating uh, to get into the, the heart of these matters. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, okay, so, you know, you mentioned gaming the system, and I just thought, yeah, there we go again. It's, it's, everything's a game, it, it, you know, when we, when we get down to it to some level about how we are looking at this. It's a bit of a gamble, but it, it's always very interesting to see the results, of course. And I, I, I guess the other thing is, is it, you mentioned this idea of looking at, at local, and we always get the national picture and we see what's going on. And why do you think we don't see more emphasis on that local idea of, of being able to uh, 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 focus voters in their area where that's where their vote is going to count and, and either elect a candidate they want or not? It's, it's not, you know, about the uh, leader. Right. Well, this is where local campaigns can make a difference with volunteers door knocking, mm. uh, people calling and making their particular pitches. But what we know in from the data is that the vast majority of voters do not ba- vote based on their local candidates. Mm. They vote based on party affiliation. Right. Most people don't even know anything about the local candidates. Beyond parties, they're mm. more interested than in who the leader of the party is. Yep. And then really their last consideration, this is according to election study after election study, is the local candidate. And that's why even though we say all politics is local, when it comes to federal elections, that's certainly not the case. That's a little sad. Maybe, but uh, <laughs> that doesn't change the <laughs> fact that it's true. It's true enough, I know. Um, and yet, you know, uh, once the election is completed, uh, then it is that local candidate that if you have issues or whatever, you're going to be dealing with. That's right. Although we do have a, a parliamentary system where parties are very strong and where most individual MPs will always vote along party lines. So in a way, it makes sense that voters are choosing based on party affiliation and not the local candidates. Right, right. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. My name is David Moses. I'm your host, and this is Moment of Truth. My guest here on the show is Larry Savage. He is a professor in the Department of Labor Studies at Brock University, and his research is broadly concerned with union strategy. He teaches courses on labor unions, collective bargaining, and labor politics, and we're talking to him about an article he authored in The Conversation, which is called Canadian Election 2021, Do Strategic Voting Campaigns Actually Work? Great. We have been talking about that and getting some explanation around uh, strategic voting, what it actually means to the individual. Now, we talked about some of the confusion and, you, and, and some of those things that can happen within strategic voting and how that can backfire. Um, can we get into more of the details of some of those examples that you've mentioned in your article around exactly that kind of thing? Sure. I mean, one of the examples from... The 2011 election, which was an election in which the Canadian Auto Workers Union had spent a great deal of resources on a targeted strategic voting campaign, they actually targeted seven ridings where their preferred strategic candidate actually finished third. Mm. And so that undermined the entire 
logic of what they were trying to do in terms of stopping conservatives from being elected. And of course, in that election, the conservatives went from a minority to a majority. In one of those ridings, just west of Toronto, the union backed a liberal incumbent over an NDP candidate named Jigmeet Singh, who at that time was running in his first campaign ever, and of course not as NDP leader. Mm. And the union backed the liberal because they thought this Singh didn't have a shot and they were encouraging people to vote strategically to stop a conservative. On election day, though, Jagmeet Singh lost by just a few hundred votes to the conservative in that riding. And the liberal candidate, who was supposedly the best strategic option based on national polling data and the, and the past performance in the riding, he finished in third place. In other words, the union had clearly backed the wrong candidate for their purposes. And in the process, they helped to hand the seat over to the conservatives. Strategic voting backfired entirely in that case. It almost sounds to some degree like uh, the local uh, the local voters uh, were sort of educated in what they were doing there in terms of at least who they were who they were specifically looking to want to, to vote into that riding anyway. Well, this is one of the things that strategic voting can't account for. Mm. They can't account for new popular local candidates Mm. because strategic voting is always based on looking back at the previous election results. So if there's a new popular local candidate, you can't account for how much personal popularity they may have. Mm. Strategic voting campaigns also do a pretty poor job at dealing with surges in party support mid-campaign. And so you might, for example, endorse a half dozen candidates at the start of the campaign because they're best positioned to defeat a conservative at that point. But halfway through the campaign, that party could collapse, another party can surge. This is precisely what happened in the 2015 election when a strategic voting organization called Lead Now endorsed a handful of anti-conservative candidates in British Columbia. And in three of those ridings, they backed NDP candidates who ended up finishing third because Lead Now did not properly account for the surge that Justin Trudeau's liberals experienced in the second half of that campaign. Mm. And in two of those three ridings, the conservatives managed to just hold on by a sliver because, ironically, lead now had helped to splinter the anti-conservative vote. So this is another dynamic that we might see in this election. You know, we know the liberals are down a bit. The NDP is up. If Jagmeet Singh has an amazing debate performance, for example, in Mm. a few days, uh, you know, we may see that party surge in the polls. And then all these people who are telling us that strategic voting means voting liberal in certain ridings, they may actually be undermining the effort. You really need to be making a last minute decision based on good local data. And that data is very hard to come by. I'm glad you said what you just said there about uh, last minute or, you know, when to vote is what I was thinking about as I was also reading through this article. When is the best time to strategically vote um, if that's what you want to do? Is it better to vote sooner or hold off and vote later once you see how things are going? 
That's right. If you, if you are bound and determined to vote strategically, you should be voting at the last possible moment. You should not be voting in the advanced polls because so much can change between when you cast your ballot and when they're counted on election day. Mm. Um, your example there about lead now and also, I guess, about the CAW and, and some of the things that went wrong in some of their uh, strategic voting campaigns. Um, again, it was really interesting how you, you said you, you can't they can't really account for new candidates and their popularity uh, or, or those kind of things and um, and also I guess it also brings to mind about doing your homework um, before you start to I guess tell people what you're going to do and it really comes back to that point about education again doesn't it it sure does but I think we got to be frank the political establishment in Canada sort of lives in this bubble where they think everyone is closely tracking what's happening in Parliament, Mm. what's happening in the party platforms, what's happening in the polls. The reality is that the vast majority of Canadians are barely paying attention to these kinds of details. They just get the headlines if we're lucky. And so the expectation that people would be dissecting this information very carefully, that they would be maybe even pooling their resources to have local constituency based polls. That's just not going to happen between now and September 20th. And so, you know, what I argue in that piece is that at the end of the day, voters really shouldn't be seduced or scared into voting strategically because given what we know historically about the ineffectiveness of organized strategic voting campaigns, it means you might as well just vote for the candidate you actually (laughs) believe in because if you try to game the system, it's unlikely to produce the outcome you're looking for. (laughs) Right. It really does sound like that. It sounds like keeping it simple is the best idea. (laughs) Exactly. Um, Yeah, they're gaming the system again, doing your homework, though, if you're going to look into this. Uh, As we look forward, uh, I'm just wondering what kind of thoughts you have about uh, what you're seeing through this election. And have you been hearing much about strategic voting this time around? What strikes me about this election is that calls for strategic voting have popped up much earlier than they would in a normal election campaign. Mm. In a typical election campaign, maybe it's the last week where you really start to hear strong calls and arm twisting for strategic voting. I think it's happened much earlier in this campaign because the liberals have faltered so badly in the polls right out of the gate. So there may be, I think, you know, in calling the election, there was a calculation that they would be able to turn their minority into a majority that the conservatives were low in the polls, Mm. that the Green Party was imploding, that this was a a sort of a great time Mm. to test the electorate. I think there's a little buyer's remorse on behalf of more than a few liberal candidates that (laughs) that the government sort of triggered this election. And that's why you're seeing these calls for strategic voting going out early, because the liberal poll numbers are dropping. Yeah. Yeah, there seems to be that. Uh, Before the election was actually called, uh, my gut feeling was telling me this doesn't feel like the right time to call an election. Uh, How was your what was your gut telling you about this? Anything? 
I think that the government was being strategic to capitalize on a moment where they thought they could turn the major the minority rather into a majority. But you know, given that we are now it looks like in the fourth wave of a pandemic. Mm. Um, I think a lot of voters have, uh, they resent the government for having called the election mm-hmm. and are maybe punishing them in these early polls. Of course, the campaign still has a long ways to go. We still haven't seen the leaders debate. And so anything can change. But I think uh, the public is very annoyed that there is an election going on right now. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I did see a story exactly, I guess, to some degree about what you were talking about in, in terms of that early strate- strategy kind of thing that's going on. The story was saying that, um, you know, even though the liberals are low, uh, there was a poll taken. Maybe you're familiar with this and that it said that most the most likely effect of what's going to happen is if it comes down to a head-to-head between the conservatives and the liberals uh people that are sort of on the fence or uh not sure what to do would probably throw their vote behind the liberals uh and that's what they said they would do if it came down to that that kind of a of, of a battle i i actually haven't seen that um data although it's quite consistent with what we've heard um, from pollsters in the past, mm. that there are a lot of people who park their votes until towards the end of the election campaign, and then they put their vote to work in a way that they think would be most effective. Of course, being one of the leading contending parties always puts you in a better position to call on voters uh, to do that. The worst case scenario for the Liberals, of course, is that they continue to slide in the polls and then they lose the argument that they are the most electorally viable alternative to mm. the conservatives. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, well, it will be very interesting. A- any final comments uh, as we head into this, uh, just be- as we finish up? Well, I just think the the bottom line of my research on these strategic voting campaigns is that the success of strategic voting as an organized effort is really overstated. There's lots of evidence to demonstrate that in Canadian electoral history. And in some cases, you might actually be helping to splinter the anti-conservative vote. So voters really have to be careful if they want to exercise that option. Is there, as you say, splinter the vote, I'm just wondering, is there any information on the kind of numbers that we actually see uh, throughout an election where, you know, in terms of percentages that, that people actually, uh, that we know those, those votes are splintered in that way? Well, we know in the last federal election campaign, according to public opinion polling, that about a third of voters indicated that they were open to voting strategically. Mm. Now, that doesn't mean that they all carried through and voted strategically. And it also doesn't mean that they voted strategically against the conservatives. You know, there are all sorts of different strategic options that somebody could uh, could exercise, right. but um, but it's it's complicated, and we don't really know the answer because um, <laughs> because one of the flaws in the polling data, of course, is that 
we are having to believe that what people say they do is what they actually did. <laughs> and one of the flaws of Canadian election studies, of course, is one of the first questions that gets asked after every election is, did you vote? And the overwhelming majority of people indicate yes, when we know that voter turnout is not as high as people claim it is. Mm. And so, you know, there's a little disconnect there between reality and uh, what people tell pollsters. Oh, boy. Interesting stuff for sure. Absolutely. Uh, Larry, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the show. Maybe we can talk after the election, uh, you know, and, and see how things went and, and uh, you know, compare notes. That would be great. Thanks, David. All right. You take care. All right. Bye-bye. That's Larry Savage. He's a professor in the Department of Labor Studies at Brock University. He authored a uh, an article in The Conversation entitled Canadian Election 2021, Do Strategic Voting Campaigns Actually Work? And he is a professor in the Department of Labor Studies at Brock University. His research is broadly concerned with union strategy. He teaches courses on labor unions, collective bargaining, and labor politics. That's this part of the show. Thank you for listening. Stay with us. We'll be right back after this with more right here on Moment of Truth. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. And it is a pleasure to welcome to the show, we have with us Mr. Alex Marland. He is a professor of political science at Memorial University in Newfoundland. And he is here to talk about an article he authored in the conversation. It is entitled... Historically, how important is the 2021 Canadian election? So it's a pleasure to have uh, Alex with us on the show. He also is the author of a book, his book, Whipped. It's a party discipline in Canada, a UBC Press production, and takes readers behind the scenes of the Canadian parliamentary politics and reveals the clandestine world of message discipline. Alex, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on the program. You bet. And, of course, your article is a very timely one. We are in the midst of this election, and we have developments going on. I, I think it's interesting also because the, the the title itself, How Important Is This Election?, it, it feels like uh, it, it doesn't feel that important to me. Am I, Are you feeling that? Well, it's interesting because when I, when I first started thinking about this, I was looking at what Trudeau had said when the he uh, asked the governor general to dissolve uh, parliament and mm. trigger the election. And his comment was that this is certainly the most important election in our lifetimes and perhaps the most important election since 1945. And that really seemed like a bit of rhetoric. Like that just seemed really overstated. You know, it's, I think it's important to really to Justin Trudeau and it's certainly an important election. Don't get me wrong. There's a lot going on obviously with the pandemic, but mm. What I hadn't anticipated when I was writing this piece was just how long it would go on for Trudeau with the question of why are we having an election? (laughs) And usually voters get irritated when there's an election call, especially an early one. They grumble for a few days Mm -hmm. and then it kind of wears off. And I was thinking, well, you know, maybe that would be the case this time. But in fact, it's not been like that at all. If anything, it just seems to be building in this groundswell of anger. There's no obvious reason to have been going to the polls so early compared to when they needed to go. 
And everybody seems to recognize that the only real reason to go is because Trudeau wanted to get more liberal MPs and more power. He wants a majority government. And of course, majority governments have incredible power compared to minority parliaments. Hmm. And yet it seems like he is taking a bit of a, uh, a gamble by doing so. Yeah, well, anytime you go to the, uh, you know, go to the, an election, there's always a gamble. Of course. Um, you know, I think a lot of people would say that they must have been looking at what has happened in all sorts of other provinces with, um, you know, governments growing from minorities to uh, majorities. Uh, the Conservatives and the NDP and the Greens and the Bloc have all kind of not been able to get much traction against the Liberals. Mm. And so there was a lot of reason for optimism, I think, in Liberal circles about the possibility of making seat gains. But instead, what we're finding is that so far, and, you know, it's still early days in the election. A lot of people won't really pay attention till after Labor Day and after the leaders debates. But right. uh, early indications are the liberal campaign is not going very well. Yeah, I just uh, recently heard something about uh, how the uh, conservatives uh, and the the uh, the NDP are are both uh, gaining ground and the liberals are are losing ground at this point. However, this poll was also talking about how if it came down to the wire, um, that uh, voters that don't necessarily vote liberal, uh, if it came down to the wire between the conservatives and the liberal, they would they would put their vote behind the liberal party. So you also pointed out about how in your article uh, about how Trudeau made mention of the election of, of 1945. And uh, of course, that was a time when uh, the country was coming back uh, from from uh, a war and turning things around at that point. I, I, I mean, I understand what their analogy is. I mean, if you if you look at it, there's been nothing that has affected everybody in society since mm-hmm. World War II the way mm-hmm. this pandemic has. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can look at, you know, Vietnam War, you can look at 9-11, uh, the economic crisis uh, of 2008, 2009, recessions, all this sort of thing. Nothing compares to what we've been going through with the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And so they're really trying to say, well, look, you know, this is about building the country in a way and going forward. They want to you know, build back better is kind of a catchphrase some progressives are using. And the idea is that you're going to fundamentally reshape Canadian society the way that a lot of people might think happened after 1945. But uh, the reality is that it's not really a good comparison that, mm. um, you know, the World War Two was was much different than the pandemic, obviously. Mm-hmm. And the even the, the election in 1945, I mean, in fact, the liberals didn't do particularly well in that election. They ended up with a minority government. Right. The prime minister wasn't elected, uh, Mackenzie King, in his own seat. So he had to end up getting elected in a by-election. So that's not exactly the kind of example you want to, to evoke. And then on top of that, there have been some really important elections since 1945. And So I think that uh, when the Liberals pulled out that particular phrase, they were probably focusing on on how important it is to the Liberals and to Trudeau's career. Mm. But I think in retrospect, it turns out that the 2019 election was really important. We didn't know COVID was on the agenda. And yet so much has happened under the Liberal government in the past couple of years that really who ended up winning the 2019 uh, election is is was historically now it's going to be quite important. Yeah, exactly. Um, and and you, you point out that, and you point out the other important um, elections over time as well, and I found that really interesting. But um, can you elaborate more on what you mean by that about the 2019 election? 
Well, because in the 2019, the Conservative Party, led by Andrew Scheer, got more votes than the Liberals did. And yet the way the electoral system works, it turned out that the Liberals ended up um, with a minority of seats. They had a minority of government. Justin Trudeau stayed on as prime minister. Um, But, you know, had things gone slightly different, had the Conservatives got just a few percentage points more, um, Andrew Scheer could be prime minister. And Mm. you could well imagine that the approach that the Conservatives Mm. would have taken in a minority parliament uh, would have probably been, you know, there would have been a lot of similarities, but it also would have been quite different than how the Liberals approach things. I mean, all you have to do is take a look at how Conservative premiers across Canada have approached the pandemic Mm. compared to uh, Liberal and NDP premiers to get a sense of how much different things would have been had the Conservatives been put into office after the 2019 election. So I think retroactively looking back at things, the 2019 election was actually quite significant. And we can't predict where things are going, but as things stand, 2019 is probably more important than 2021 in terms of the election. But again, who knows where things are going uh, from this point forward. In order to, to really test Trudeau's comment about uh, the 2021 election being important, we're going to need years of hindsight. And obviously, none of us can do that. Yeah. You know, the other thing your article talked about was how this COVID threw the focus onto Trudeau. He became the spokesperson for Canada. We watched him every morning, you know, as he got out and gave the report. And, and you know, that was unusual because we would never have gotten that uh, had COVID not hit. We wouldn't have seen Trudeau as much in in uh, in our face every morning, uh, giving us those updates on how things were going as, as he came out of his home, you know. And and I thought, wow, yeah, that's right. That was going on every day. and And it made me think, well, just now, as I was thinking about this, is I wonder what that did to, if at all, uh, affected him in, in in his psyche at all. Well, I think, yeah, you raised a really interesting point, and it's worth you know just thinking back to after the 2019 election. Um, I think that a lot of liberals, the Trudeau especially, realized that he wasn't nearly as popular in 2019 as he had been in 2015 when there was this sort of wave mm. of support and. Mm. You know, they, the Liberals really made a point, and, you know, it's ultimately Trudeau who makes the decision, of kind of staying out of the public eye after the 2019 election. Christopher Freeland um, mm. became the government's main spokesperson right. as intergovernmental affairs minister at the time, and she was everywhere. Right. And then the pandemic hit, and suddenly it was Trudeau, and Trudeau was everywhere. Yeah. And people seemed to like that. Mm. And I think it really helped rejuvenate things for him. He went from trying to stay out of the public eye to really enjoying the limelight. Mm, Yes, very true. Uh, You also made mention of some of the other important elections over time, and I thought that was really interesting to make some comparisons and look back at some of those things. Do you mind mentioning some of those other elections you were talking about? Uh, Sure. Well, in the 1960s, there were elections that end up, well, actually, even before the 60s, if we look at uh, in the late 1950s and uh, 57 and 58, there were elections that ended up having John Diefenbaker as prime minister. And that was that was a real shocker because in the 1957 election, the Liberals were looking for yet another majority government. They'd been in office for 22 consecutive years. And being in office so long kind of has a way of building up resentment. And people were getting tired. And they saw um, uh, Louis Saint Laurent as sort of this he was positioned as 
you know, Uncle Louie is how he was uh, advertised. But mm. then you had this fiery, dynamic speaker and John Diefenbaker and the television uh, coverage of him. It was it was, you know, really a new medium and the ability to see this fiery speaker on television really getting animated and mm. talking often about how important Parliament was uh, compared to the government just doing what it wanted led to a really shocking result in 1957 in a PC minority and then in 58 in the PC majority. So that was that was one uh, set that was quite important mm. in terms of it really fractured the party system. It really changed the way that Canadian politics worked because mm-hmm. suddenly there was an option other than voting liberal all the time. Right. And then another series of important elections occurred in 63 and 65. That was when uh, Lester Pearson ended up being becoming prime minister. And that period of minority governance saw the Liberals collaborate with the NDP quite a bit, and it created all sorts of social programs that really um, still today form the, the social safety net that we have, uh, Medicare, mm-hmm. uh, old age, or sorry, Canada pension plan, student loans. Um, but on top of that, also the Canadian Maple Leaf flag in 1965, It was a real period of acrimony, but it was also a period of a lot of social progress. And then there were others beyond that. Um, Some that come to mind, the 1988 free trade election was Mm -hmm. enormous Mm -hmm. in terms of getting people to decide, you know, do you want Canada to engage in a a free trade existence with lower tariffs uh, and in the economy with the United States? And that set the precursor for NAFTA with uh, Mexico in the early 90s. And then, of course, uh, I would say the 1980. Uh, election was a huge one because in 1980, uh, Pierre Trudeau had stepped down. Uh, Joe Clark was prime minister. Trudeau, uh, Pierre Trudeau wasn't going to lead the Liberals into the next election. Suddenly, the Clark Liberals, or sorry, the Clark Conservatives lose on a non-confidence vote on a budget that a lot of people were found unpalatable. They were back at the polls and the Trudeau Liberals end up winning a majority. And the period of 1980-84, when Trudeau liberals were leading a government uh, was when the Charter of Rights and Freedoms was passed and when the Constitution of Canada was patriated. And not only are those significant and still have repercussions today, they also set off a real firestorm of controversy in Quebec that led to things like the Meech Lake Accord in 87 under Mulroney and the Charlottetown Accord in 92 under Mulroney of trying to bring Canada, uh, Quebec back into kind of the Canadian Federation. So all these things were going on. And then the, the next one that I'd remark on is the ni- 2008 election. And that was when Stephen Harper was similar to Trudeau this time, was trying to get turn a minority into a majority. Uh, but there was a, you know, a major global crisis going on. The economy was in meltdown, American banks and housing yeah. uh, prices were in freefall. Um, but he only ended up getting a stronger minority government. And in that case, of course, not everybody was impacted by the economic changes when the stock market collapses. Right. And for a lot of people, that doesn't matter. But right. the pandemic is quite different, of course, because it affects right. all of us. Yes. You know, the 1993 election, you point out about uh, two established national parties were displaced in favor of two regional parties. I thought that was interesting. I kind of forgot about that, actually. Yeah, goodness, I just did just that second. But frankly, whenever um, you ask a Canadian political scientist, what are the most important elections in Canadian history? And a lot of us would turn to the uh, 1957-58 period when there was the Diefenbaker uh, conservatives that I just mentioned. And 1993 stands out as what most of us would call an election earthquake. And that's because there was so much frustration with the Brian Mulroney conservatives, although by that time it was led by uh, Kim Campbell. Mm. 
And it was just this real annoyance at establishments mm. and at established parties. And so lots of Canadians ended up turning away from the conservative, progressive conservatives and away from the NDP. And they went towards the Bloc Québécois in Quebec. And in Western Canada, they went towards the Reform Party. And although the Liberals um, formed a government under Jean Chrétien, a majority government, uh, the real shocking part about that election was that the Bloc Québécois with 54 seats became Her Majesty's loyal official opposition. Mm. Uh, the Reform Party with 52 seats were close behind. And meanwhile, the Progressive Conservatives, this you know powerful force that had formed a government two consecutive year, uh, elections in a row, uh, an historically powerful um, party, uh, was reduced to nine seats, mm-hmm. or sorry, to two seats. Right. And, uh, you know, basically almost to non-existence. Yeah. And the NDP, which had always been the third party, um, or at least since the 60s, um, was reduced to nine seats. Yeah. And to have official party status in the House of Commons, you need 12 seats. That's so you can get extra resources yeah. and have right. time in the House. And uh, they didn't make it. So the 93 election was really significant. Yeah, yeah, it was, uh, thinking back on that. But, you know, what's funny is this COVID situation has made anything prior to COVID seem so long ago. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, uh, yeah, no kidding. I mean, uh, you know, a, a big issue in the last election campaign was um, how Justin Trudeau was uh, treating uh, women in his caucus, for example, mm. or you think about the SNC Lavalin affair mm. and all sorts of people talking about Jody Wilson Raybould and right. Jane Philpott and, yep. you know, pipelines was another big issue in the last election campaign. I mean, climate change. I mean, these are things that are still out there, but for the most part, for a lot of people, they're talking about healthcare. They are still talking about climate change, but the pandemic has to be at the forefront of everybody's mind at the moment yeah and pushed everything else uh, to the back uh, you're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa I'm your host David Moses this is Moment of Truth my guest on the show is Alex Marland he's a professor of political science at Memorial University in Newfoundland we are talking to him about his article he authored in the conversation historically how important is the 2021 Canadian election it's a pleasure to have Alex on the show and you know, you mentioned off the top also about how this question around this election, why have this election, is sort of a, a dogging a Trudeau since uh, it's following him around. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's kind of interesting is some of the news coverage showing that there's been these protesters yeah. at where he's um, showing up for events and how Aaron O'Toole, his leader of the Conservative Party, is you know not holding the same number of events. Mm. It is interesting for somebody like me and trying to understand, you know, why do parties do what they do? Right. You know, Trudeau really is following kind of the the tried and trusted model of going around, trying to have a tour. The media follows you. You make announcements. You get good pu- publicity about whatever it is you're announcing or you hope to. And, you know, that worked for Trudeau in 2015. Um, it worked a little less so in 2019. This year, it's a real problem for him because protesters are mobilizing and booing him. Mm-hmm. And so the news coverage lately has been about booing as opposed yes. to whatever it is that the Liberals were hoping to announce. And so they've made some changes to that by not announcing their schedule quite as quickly or publicly as they had previously. And so that's an interesting element. Meanwhile, O'Toole is holding some telephone town halls from uh, inside, uh, at, you know, in a conservative built area. And so when 
they're kind of inoculating themselves from the outside world and yet they're using technology to reach out to people. Mm -hmm. The media finds this kind of interesting, but the media also gets irritated because journalists want to have access and and be the ones telling the stories. They don't want politicians who bypass the media and uh, try to connect directly with voters um, without that sort of interpretation filter or context that only a journalist can really offer. Right. Now, of course, uh, one of the things that uh, is still important and was uh, right up there with COVID was was the climate crisis we find ourselves in. And, um, you know, we've had these wildfires out west. We've had some in northern Ontario. Uh, we've had drought. We've had a bunch of things that, that show that the climate is, in fact, uh, up there. Um, are you hearing any anything around the climate uh, in, in what's going on out there with the politicians? Um. You know, I can say certainly, uh, you know, from people I've talked to, um, the, it's very clear that a lot of these forest fires are top of mind in among the people who are affected. Uh, whereas if, in other parts of the country, the forest fires aren't really, you know, at the, at the top of mind issue. Mm. Um, the thing about climate change is, I think, I think to give a sense that it's not as burning an issue, and pardon the pun, as maybe some other years, is first of all, it's very common whenever the economy gets into a difficult spot that people move away from being concerned about the climate or the environment generally and towards worrying about the economy. They start worrying about jobs. They worry about uh, how government will pay for things and this kind of thing because it's more pressing, it's more urgent, it's more immediate. Um, So to some extent, maybe we're seeing that. I mean, climate change is still important to a lot of people. I'm not saying it's not, but I'm just saying, why is it not a, a, a top issue? And that's one of the reasons. Um, but I think we can also see why it's not a top issue is because we don't have a, a strong Green Party really pushing issues and, you know, talking about the climate the way that they had more credibility in previous campaigns. Coming into this campaign, uh, the leader, Enemy Paul, has, has been going all sorts of going through all sorts of trouble trying to manage her party, um, you know, party executives trying to um, oust her essentially. And yeah. uh, the, the Greens lost a, a, an MP who crossed the floor to the Liberals in Fredericton. Mm. And so the, all the coverage about the Greens, the Green Party, over the summer was negative. And there's even a, a, you know, a recent report um, that is saying that there's all sorts of racism within the Green Party. And these are not the kinds of things the Green Party wants to be getting attention for. They want to be getting attention for you know, calling the other parties out for not paying enough attention to climate change or not doing enough. And so there is a definite difference this time around compared to 2019. Yeah, no kidding, because uh, if there was ever an election uh, around, as we've been talking about the climate and what's going on, uh, this would have been the time that, that the Green Party could definitely have taken advantage of that. Well, I mean, when everybody's thinking about the pandemic, I think it's a bit hard to, to advance climate change issues. I mean, if, if somebody's worried about whether or not they're, they've being vaccinated they're worried about um or or they're concerned about you know mandates about wearing masks or vaccine passports or bringing kids back into school Mm -hmm. or uh, having to go back into a workplace setting themselves they're worried about their job they're worried about government benefits ending i mean they're worried about all sorts of things that are the immediate whereas the thing about climate change is a lot of the time you can't see it and also, it's something that is down the road as opposed to happening necessarily today that you can feel. Unless you're sitting there and you're freezing your house because there's no power for the past three days, 
and that can be attributed to some form of climate change. Uh, or, you know, you're dealing with a flood or fires or something that you can directly say, this is climate change. That's when you're going to feel a need to deal with it. But if those things are not in your life at the exact moment, and right now you're worried and scared about, you know, contracting COVID or you're worried about not being able to travel or all these things, those worries are pushing aside or at least competing with concerns about uh, climate change. Uh, the other thing I wanted to ask you about was, you know, the last over the last year, uh, last couple of years as well, um, a lot of things have happened in and around uh, residential schools. We've, of course, seen the discovery of, of unmarked graves out west and at a number of other residential schools. Uh, that was uh, also uh, something I thought might be uh, we be hearing about in the election. So far, I haven't really heard much. Yeah, I would agree. For something that was uh, at the forefront of media coverage for you know a, a good period of time, um, most of what I have seen just had to do with uh, you know I saw some headlines about Aaron O'Toole saying, well, you know, it's time to start putting up the Canadian flag again. Why is it still at half mast on on government buildings? But uh, otherwise, it, it doesn't seem to be coming up as an issue. Um, even to some extent, maybe. Uh, you know, a lot of what's happening in Afghanistan hasn't been coming up as much as perhaps some people would like. And and really why I'm bringing, tying those together is, is saying that it it raises a broader question about, you know, what is this election about? Mm. You know, there's all these different issues going on, all these things that people can agree are important. And yet at the same time, it seems like the parties are are failing to kind of get traction on any particular issue or agenda that people can say, well, you know, this is the, the real uh, reason why we're having this election at all. Yeah, it's interesting. It kind of brings it right back to the the whole point of your article about uh, how important this I- election is right now and why we're having it, uh, which you, you say is important for Trudeau. So let's look at, uh, as we finish up, talk about Trudeau again. If things don't go, well, he might end up with a majority. If he doesn't end up with a majority and we end up with uh, a major- a minority uh, liberal party once again, what will, what will really have changed and what what will then ha- happen or change within his party, if anything? Yeah, so it's it's always difficult to talk about hypotheticals, except that we can get a sense of what's happened, you know, historically. Mm. And one thing to keep in mind is that uh, the Trudeau Liberals could get fewer seats than the Conservatives, and yet Trudeau remains Prime Minister until he's no longer Prime Minister. In other words, uh, they could range, make some, you know, depending if if they're close in terms of number of seats. Mm they could come to a, some sort of agreement with the Liberals, or sorry, with the NDP, right. who could keep them in power. So I think for the the Conservatives to form a government, uh, even a minority government, they'd have to have a you know a good advantage over the, the Liberals. Mm. But the point is, I think, that if the Liberals are knocked down to a smaller, thinner minority, a lot of Liberals are going to be really irked with Trudeau mm. uh, for uh, you know what would be seen as a colossal mm. miscalculation. And mm. There'll be more, you know, his, his control over the party will will diminish somewhat and people will start saying, you know, is he really the guy and the leader who mm. we want for the next election? Mm. You know, and so you start having a lot of that rumbling emerge and there's been a lot of loyalty to Trudeau. I mean, for so many reasons within that party. Um, but I think that there'll also be people who start saying, well, is it time for somebody else? I mean, one thing I'm always struck by is the fact that as much as the liberals talk about you know, supporting women and uh, and being, you know, Trudeau being a feminist, it, it's always amazing to me that the, the Liberal Party of Canada is the only major party that has not had 
a, a woman as a leader of the party. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, notwithstanding the bloc, but mm-hmm. the, the only major federal party that has not had a woman leader. Mm. Right. Interesting. Well, the NDP seems to be uh, gaining ground a little bit. Yeah, and Jagmeet Singh definitely has a lot of uh, people who like him. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether you like the NDP or not might be another matter, but a lot of people see him as a, a credible leader. He is definitely, uh, in my opinion, um, acting as somebody who has more experience than he did last time, is more comfortable. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's, he's got a lot more credibility. And yet at the same time in English Canada, we don't tend to hear as much about uh, Blanchet as uh, right. leader of the the Bloc Québécois. Right. And of course, there's Annemie Paul, and uh, we haven't heard as much about her, but a lot of that is because of the negativity associated with the Greens, as I mentioned. So I think that a lot of pollsters would say, uh, watch out for Jagmeet Singh and the NDP because they could end up surprising uh, quite a number of people. Yes. Well, Alex, we'll have to leave it there. It's been fascinating speaking with you. I want to thank you for taking the time to join us on the show and uh, talk to us about this election coming up uh, September 20th. Thank you very much for your article. Historically, how important is this 2021 Canadian election? You can check it out in the conversation. It is authored by Alex Marland. He is a professor of political science at Memorial University of Newfoundland. Been a pleasure speaking with you, Alex. Thank you again. Thank you for having me on the program, David. You bet. Take care. And that is our show for today. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, David Moses. This is Moment of Truth, and we'll see you again tomorrow. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.